You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Today we have a very special speaker, and it's my pleasure to introduce William Sue as our entrepreneurial thought leader speaker today. He has his BS in industrial engineering from Stanford and an MBA from Wharton. As a 23-year-old, just a year after he graduated from Stanford, he founded and was the executive vice president of product development at BuildPoint. He helped build the company to over 250 people and raised over $50 million in VC. Later, he served as a senior VP and chief product officer at AT&T Interactive, which is a Fortune 100 company where he doubled the revenue of that venture. William recently co-founded Mucker Lab, which supports tech startups and aims to accelerate the tech entrepreneurship ecosystem in Los Angeles. Today, William will share his professional journey with us and tell us about his work at Mucker Labs. Please join me in welcoming him back to Stanford. Thank you. Thank you all. I can't believe people actually came and, and actually listened to me. Uh, it wasn't really that long ago, at least in my head. Um, actually, mathematically, it's almost 20 years since I was in this particular class, but actually in Terman, but that doesn't exist anymore. Um, taking this class and taking classes from Professor Kosnick. So Stanford has a, a quite a bit of a, a impact in my career, especially the engineering school, the industrial engineering major, and the professor that I, that I work with here at Stanford. Uh, I want to give you guys a little bit about my personal background. Um, my belief is that uh, the dots kind of creates a picture eventually, and the personal part of who I am is much more important than the professional part of me. Uh, I was born in Taiwan. Um, I lived the first 10 years of my life in Taiwan and then spent one year uh, living in a, in a little island called Guam where I learned English. So yes, English is my second language. Um, and then I moved to Saratoga, which is really about 15 minutes south of here. So the valley, the Bay Area, this is home to me. Right? I, I grew up here. Um, back in the day when I was growing up, um, I was as geeky as you can get. Right? So, me and my friends would kind of ride our bikes up and down De Anza and Stevens Creek, kind of collecting computer parts and kind of building our own computers. Uh, back then, computers were kind of a hobby, right? And today, as we sit here today, you can't really separate the business of what the computer industry or technology industry really is from kind of the passion for it. And one of the things I always want myself to remember was back then before what a dollar was, what EBITDA was, what growth rate was, I cared about how fast my computer were and all the programs I was downloading and how fun it was to kind of hack at this little box that I was building. And that kind of passion um, should always be with you as really think about all the interesting things that you can build, that you can become a hundred millionaire or billionaire as you kind of build your business, that you can't really lose that piece of yourself, the passion. I was lucky enough to get into Stanford in 1994. Uh, I was an industrial engineering major. I graduated in 1998. Um, not a lot of you guys obviously remember what it was in 1998, uh, but 1998 was the beginning of a really, really crazy period in the dot-com history. Um, I know a lot of you sit here and think about, wow, there must be a bubble outside. Um, well, 1998 was probably 10 times worse or better, depending on kind of your perspective. When I was invited to speak at this class, um, the first thing I did was I went online and looked at all the videos. Right? Because I was like, what am I really going to talk about? I'm kind of mid-career. I haven't really done too much. So let me think about and, and really figure out what other people are talking about. Well, I, I took a look at Mark Zuckerberg's video, Jack Dorsey, Larry Page, and Dreesen, Musk, Teal. Right? And then I felt, started feeling really, really tiny. <laughs> I was like, uh-oh, right? These guys are outliers, right? If you look at the history of their career, the first or second, second startup, they hit a gigantic home run. Um, I haven't hit that home run yet, and I tried multiple times. So what am I versus what are these guys? And well, I call them outliers. 
Um, as an industrial engineering major, I like to distill everything down to math, so I'll put up a normal curve, right? Um, all of you guys here, like I know the acceptance rate now for Stanford is like around 6%, right? And assuming some sort of kind of self-selection into that pool, I'll say that whatever you think the x-axis might be, you guys are essentially between two to three standard deviation from the mean, right? So the top kind of uh, two to 0.1% of quote unquote the, the general population. Well, these guys that were speaking here, standing here and talking to you guys before, um, they're between six to seven standard deviation from the mean. What does that mean, right? <laughs> right. When your mom tells you one in a million, well, that means you're six standard deviation from the mean. Um, when you're seven standard deviation from the mean, that means you're one out of a billion. So if you are in China, there's one of you. <laughs> right? Um, the, the industry that I come from and all of you guys are interested in kind of learning more about uh, have a term for, for people or things or companies that are way outside of the mean that's super successful that can really kind of drive uh, revolutionary change. Um, they call them black swans uh, by a, uh, a statistician and an author, uh, Nassim Talib. Um, or they call them unicorns, right? Essentially, impossibly to find, but eventually, somehow, in the corner of your eye, you see it one day, right? So, between one out of a million and one out of a billion. Well, I have to face the fact, right? And I am not a black swan, or nor I am a unicorn. But what I am is, I don't give up. I work hard, I study harder, and I try and try again. So this story and this talk is about a guy who's not a unicorn trying to do very unicorny kind of things. Okay. Um, and it's, my, my, my hope is that every single one of you go out and build $100 billion companies, because I know that probably exists in all of us. Right? But that's not necessarily going to happen just mathematically. So what do we do? How do we really try to change the world when that's the case? So, rewinding back to the story. Um, within 18 months of graduating from Stanford, so I graduated when I was 22, uh, by the time I was 23, uh, I started an internet company. Um, I was a combination of naive and dumb all at the same time, and that's kind of a very dangerous combination. Um, my first job out of Stanford was working for an investment bank. Ooh. Right. <laughs> uh, I worked for uh, Quota Swiss uh, for a guy named Frank Quattrone. Uh, I was one of his first uh, uh, analysts hired. Um, I did that job for about 10 months. And I met a bunch of CEOs of companies I was trying to take public. And when you are naive, you can't identify talent when you see one. Right? So I was naive and, and, and kind of stupid enough to think, wow, like, these CEOs, they don't seem that smart. I can do this too. So me plus two other guys from the bank quit 10 months into the program and decided to start an internet company. Um, 1998 was a great time to start an internet company. I had a deck, and I was a banker, so my deck was really, really beautiful. Okay. So, uh, and luckily for me, I was from Stanford with an engineering degree, and I happened to be Asian. So lots of VC likes to do pattern matching. So they go, this guy must be just as good as Jerry Yang. <laughs> So I said, of course. Actually, my middle name is Yang. No. Uh, I don't know why, and I wouldn't give myself that kind of money. But uh, in, uh, in, about, in two years since founding the company, uh, we raised about $50 million in total. Um, I didn't know how to actually spend that money. I was really good at talking about a vision of what the future can be with BuildPoint. And by the way, it's, uh, it's funny. I never. I always skip this part. BuildPoint is a marketplace for commercial construction uh, services. Um, and the reason it always skips my mind is actually because I actually had no passion for that industry. And it's actually one of the <laughs> biggest mistakes I made in my career, which is picking something that I feel like is a great opportunity and therefore VC will invest, rather than because I love what I do. Right? Well, um, I barely knew how to start a company. I barely knew how to design a product. I barely knew how to manage a team. And 
I was able to get some traction and do some good stuff. In 1998, uh, like Jeff Bezos liked to say, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Um, so nobody realized I was blind because everybody else was blind too, so I was able to raise a lot of money. Uh, but the world changed pretty quickly. Um, in 2001, the market crashed. Um, and the world changed dramatically the other direction. Um, Harvard Business Review actually came out with an article and said in 2001, information technology doesn't matter. Right? This is the end of the technology revolution. Uh, Larry Allison, that quote is kind of disappearing on that slide, uh, but what he essentially said was, he was in the middle of an interview, <laughs> the world's kind of cratering around, around us, and he basically said that if he was 21 year old, he would not be in the business that he's in. And I believe for the next 1,000 years, there will be no more revolution around technology. <laughs> and that the, the platform that we have today will continue to be the same platform. There will be no longer any innovation in technology. And he recommends everyone that he talks to to become a bioengineering or a doctor, right? bioengineering major or a doctor, which is actually you know, an interesting forethought, right? Like, that certainly is a, a future. But of course, like I said, the pendulum can swing one direction or the other. I was fired uh, in 2001 by my board. It was my own company. Uh, I own a significant majority of the company, at least in the common stock. And I was asked to leave. Um, I didn't know that was actually possible. Right. I didn't know actually. I didn't know the concept of shares and percentage ownership and common versus preferred and the board and the fiduciary duty of the board. Just one day, I walked into the office and they told told me, "Hey, we didn't want a 23-year-old running a company with 30 million dollars in the bank. Uh, we wanted someone with more gray hair, maybe a VP from Oracle, to come and run this company that we invested all this money in." Uh, my initial first thought, like an immature 20. Four-year-old at the time, 25-year-old was at the time was, I'm gonna get all my buddies in the engineering department, and we're gonna go walk out together, and we're just gonna disappear and start in the same company, exactly the same thing. Well, thank God I didn't do that, right? Because we all have responsibilities. Um, there's 250 people working at BuildPoint. They all have families. They have college savings accounts. They have, you know, mouths to feed, dinner to put on the table, and. What a responsible thought I had, and what a responsible person I have, I've been to start a company without really thinking through, can I truly be successful at building a, an internet company at the time? I spent the next uh, year and a half of my life um, doing self-discovery. So that's me in the red over, over in that picture. Uh, actually, it's not. I just found out on the internet last night. <laughs> Uh, but, but you get the point. It was a combination of traveling the world. <laughs> it was a combination of traveling the world and trying to find myself and spending a lot of alone time and going to a lot of parties. Because if you remember, I was 25, 24, 25. What do 24, 25-year-olds do? Especially since I worked so hard before then. You think that I tell you guys the, 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 the moral of the story is Hey, as a 23-year-old, don't quit your job, or don't quit your job, or don't leave Stanford and don't get a job and just don't start a company because you guys are not ready. Well, that that's not the case. Actually, I won't never say that, right? Because there are guys out there like the Dorsey, the Zuckerberg, the Gates, the Dales of the world that are outliers, right? They're born to start companies. They have an inherent knowledge or understanding of how to navigate the travails, the obstacle of starting a company. Right? They're, they're just geniuses, right? They're the Beethoven, the Mozarts of entrepreneurship, right? And they know. And in a lot of ways, sitting here today, I would never be able to figure out whether I was or I wasn't, right? So yes, go chase your dream, right? But very quickly understand that there are things that tell you that you might not be a Jack Dorsey or a Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates, right? And these are the things I did, right? I, I thought marketing was open bar parties. So I, I actually threw a lot of parties. I was an enterprise software company throwing parties for marketing, right? The mentality was completely off. Uh, 
if you guys think a lot of these young entrepreneurs were um, overly confident to the point of having lots of hubris, I was one of them. I, I thought I was better than everyone else. I was 23 and on paper worth tens of millions of dollars, right? So why shouldn't I deserve to drive a nice car and, and pretend that I'm better than everyone else? Well, there's a very big difference between hubris and confidence, right? Confidence is the willingness and the fearlessness of solving a problem, right? The ability to tackle a problem head on without fear. Hubris is the, is, is the belief that you could solve a problem even without tackling that actual Digging, digging, digging deep and understanding the, the, the components of that problem. And to be serious for a second, one of the most important things I ever learned, which um, I do want to impart on this class, is to understand the concept of unit economics. Right? Um, I had an enterprise software product I was giving away for free. So here, Mr. Company, take my product, have it for free. I had a sales force I was paying about $150,000 per salesperson to go sell a product that was for free. I was advertising at the San Jose Arena with big billboards at the Sharks, um, Shark Tank, right? Um, I actually had ads in, you guys probably don't remember, Red Herring, uh, a tech magazine like Wired. Um, the, the customer segment, the go-to-market strategy, the product itself, the component economics of how you become profitable was completely misaligned. Right? So if there's one thing you learn is to really understand how you're going to market and what the unit economics of that and can you be profitable on a per acquisition basis. So back to my life. Um, after some self-discovery, I decided that I'm not a unicorn. What I need to do is go back to what my parents taught me, which was work harder than everyone else, study harder than everyone else, and learn faster than anyone else. So I actually uh, went to school at one. I, I thought that, hey, business school could potentially give me the holes of my education around how to start and build an internet company. And that was partially true. Right? There are things that you can certainly learn when you have the, f the hindsight of what you did wrong. Um, the other thing I did was actually I started over. Um, this is a picture of, not the exact cube, but my cube looked exactly like this at eBay. So I took a, after being a, uh, a co-CEO of an internet company and worth tens of millions of dollars and have having 250 people work for me, I decided to take an entry-level job at eBay, so I didn't even have a title. I just purely entry-level. Um, and they were paying me, God, I don't even remember, it was so little that I actually had to borrow money from my parents to actually survive, right? And the rationale there was it wasn't really about the title or, or my pay or the ability to go to a cocktail party and give someone a business card that says I'm the VP of blah, right? I just wanted to learn, and I want to go to the best place I can where somebody had built a scalable internet business, and they must know something right and therefore, I can go to that company and learn from the people there. I spent the next 10 years of my life uh, kind of rebuilding a career. Um, one of the things, one of the goals I had was to go to the multiple stages of an internet company or a technology company, whether that is new venture, which I've done at my own company, Series A, growth, IPO, and Fortune 100. I was lucky enough to eventually end up being a very senior person at a very large uh, technology company called AT&T, and we like to joke that it's the Death Star, so, so. Um, Spending 10 years uh, kind of climbing the corporate ladder is not what I would consider a very entrepreneurial thing to do from the superficial perspective. But if you understand your objective, the things that you want to accomplish, it's actually a very enlightening experience, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, Building a company is very different than starting a company, right? Starting a company is selling a vision, it's recruiting, it is raising money, it is getting interviewed by TechCrunch, right? Building a company is on average a seven to 10 year road. It is hiring and firing. It is managing a product roadmap. It's motivating, setting goals, reiterating goals. It's having one-on-ones. It's, it's looking up your KPIs. It's tracking your KPIs. These are very mundane and day-to-day -day things where you need discipline and knowledge to do. 
And what I did in those 10 years was to really accum accumulate skills and experiences and not titles. Right? And I view that as a very important thing to do. Um, and then one of the, the, the most important thing that happened in my career was the, the realization that networking is actually not about networking. It's about accumulating trust from others. Um, one of the great examples I, I like to give is um, at AT&T, um, I was hired to uh, kind of build a division, a new business unit for AT&T. And one of the hardest things you have to do is when you're given a task, your job is to try to fill out and find people smarter than you to kind of solve that problem with you. And I went back to my days at eBay. Right? I was a very junior employee at eBay. But I worked hard, I was smart, I was collaborative, and I built a great reputation, or a good enough reputation. So I went back to eBay and found as many people as I can to come and work with me. Um, at eBay, they were more senior than me, um, got paid more than me, but they were willing to come to AT&T because they understood that um, the value for what we can accomplish together is not really about the title or the hierarchy. It's about the accomplishments itself. And the last thing I will say about um, how do you really spend that time building your career, that 10 years of your life, is how do you really accumulate experiences and iterations? Right? It's not about the 10 years, actually, or the two years or the three years. It's really about how many times you can get another bat. Right? How many times can you iterate and learn and repeat? Go to companies that let you learn and repeat. Release as many products in the marketplace as possible. Um, Launch as many marketing campaigns as possible. Understand the feedback loop between your customers and the feature set. All the things that get you to understand, hey, well, that wouldn't work if I did that again, but this will work, and I better try it one more time. So what happened in the 10 years since I was in the game? Right? I spent 10 years kind of building a career, working at large companies, kind of not really thinking too hard about the entrepreneur uh, side of that, that, that equation or, or, or my passion. Um, you guys might be too young. That's Michael Jordan playing baseball. Uh, if you guys don't remember, he spent, I think, two years playing baseball rather than playing basketball. Wow. The Valley in 2014 is very different than the one I graduated into when I graduated from Stanford. Uh, the cost of starting a business is dramatically different. Right? Pets.com raised $50 million just to get a website up. At BillPoint, um, we needed to get uh, a bunch of Solaris boxes, so that's a quarter of a million dollars, right? Uh, Oracle 8i license for the database, another quarter of a million dollars. Uh, BEA app server, another quarter of a million dollars. And then a web server from uh, Netscape just to be able to print Hello World on a browser somewhere, right? That's a million and a half to two million dollars just to get started. Today, um, I can go build pets.com in 15 minutes right after this class through a share hosting account that probably cost me $5 a month. Right? That's a dramatic difference in the cost of starting a business. Right? So what does that mean? Well, that means that anyone here can actually go and start a company. And all of you guys are probably thinking of it, and lots of people are doing it. Right? No longer do you have to go to Sand Hill Road and beg for $4 million before getting something off the ground. You can do that here, this instant. Right. Five minutes from when this class ends, you can go and start a company and really figure out where there's product market fit between your concept and the customer that you're targeting. The other thing that happened was the funds that actually survived the dot-com boom uh, were actually successful. So they were able to raise more and more and more money. So these venture funds went from having $100 million in their management to having 500 to a billion to $2 billion under management. Right? It takes $5 to start a company. Yet these venture funds need to deploy millions of dollars, two to ten million dollars, to make it worth their while, make their returns. So all of a sudden, there's a huge funding gap between the guy that says, "Hey, it takes me five dollars to start an internet company. Maybe I need to hire four engineers, so pay them a hundred thousand dollars each. So maybe I need five hundred thousand to a million dollars to get you know, a company off the ground for about a year." Well, it's not not very interesting to these venture funds. Um, the good news is that at the same time, a lot of the Major internet companies are starting to go through a cycle where the original employees, original founders, kind of leaving these companies and trying to figure out what to do. What they brought with them was a, an experience and expertise that can bring to the rest of the community. Right? And we hear about this all the time. The, 
the Facebook mafia, the Google mafia, or the PayPal mafia, right? What this guy brought to the table was, hey, you want to start a company and you used to work at PayPal? Come over to my house. Let's go through the business plan and figure out whether there's something here. And if there is, I'll be an advisor and help you out, right? And that's the start of this culture of kind of paying it forward. Um, and the fourth and equally important thing was these guys started out with just offering their advice. And they started saying, hey, I've made 10, 15, 50 million dollars in my last startup. Why don't I help you out and give you 200K, 300K, 400K? And they became in this robust angel community that kind of really built around the valley that never really existed when I was trying to start an internet company. And, and that community grew pretty much from being an angel, a semi-professional basis, to actually a professionally managed um, kind of venture fund ecosystem. Um, they're called seed funds now, right? And you guys probably have heard of guys like Baseline Venture and Harrison Metal and First Round. A lot of these guys came from the companies that we all have heard of. And now they're actually acting like professional angel investors, full-time investing, looking at businesses, and trying to deploy capital for their limited partners. And they're able to manage these small funds, right? They usually have between 30 to $100 million. And they can give away 250K, 100K, or you know, 500K to an entrepreneur and really make a dent in their returns. So at the same time, the bigger VCs have moved up the value chain, while this vacuum has created a whole new generation of venture funds. These guys, I call them kind of entrepreneurial-run venture funds. Right? They're typically operators and entrepreneurs running a venture fund, and their perspective is not financial. Their perspective is operational and creates a very different type of incentive and decision-making. The result of these kind of four uh, major changes in the ecosystem created um, kind of ripples, right? Um, the democratization and the moral normalization of entrepreneurship. When I was graduating from Stanford, being an entrepreneur wasn't really a career path. It was an aspiration, right? We, we, I've heard about Jerry Yang. I've heard about Bill Gates. I want to be like them. But it wasn't a career path, right? Everybody still did the banking, the consulting, um, or whatever the, the thing that they, they wanted to do to kind of prove themselves as having a, a great degree here at Stanford. Well, today, um, being an entrepreneur is actually a career path, right? You can look your mom and dad in the eye and say, hey, I'm not going to go work for Google. I'm going to start my internet company. They'll probably freak out a little bit, but eventually they're like, okay, I've heard about this. It's actually a viable career path. It's something that you can actually do. Um, the other thing that happened was the near frictionless sharing of kind of knowledge and information. The blogs, the fact that everybody is involved in this community, the, the pace of conversation, they all created this environment where um, information is almost free, right? In the sense that a reputation of a, of a, of a VC or how a company we, we, uh, started getting scale, all those things are now you can actually learn about, right? In 1999, if I want to figure out what's the secret sauce for some other internet company, I got to beat my way to that CEO's door and really beg them for that information. Today, that information is much more faster. Like I said, um, there's tons of access to capital at multiple stages, right? So that means if you want 50K, you can get 50K. If you want $50 million, you can get $50 million. That wasn't the case back in the day, right? If you want to raise money, you got to go fund someone that can give you $4 million at a time. If you don't need $4 million, tough luck. Right? Um, and then really this, this idea that VCs are not a separate class of people, right? That they're just like you and I, and it's a fair exchange of equity for money, and they're here to be part of the ecosystem, contribute to the success of the companies. Right, guys like Fred Wilson and Dave Hornick um, and Brad Feld really create this environment of, hey, let's open kimono about what exactly we do and how we make our decisions. And that's to make entrepreneurs choose us rather than us choose entrepreneurs. I like to think that the ultimate outcome, and this is perhaps a, a little bit of a, of a controversial, statement, controversial statement, is that uh, entrepreneurship has become math, right? And I don't mean that it's, it's completely certain. I mean that it's a, it's a series of, a, of a stochastic, independent uh, mathematical events. From the VC perspective or the macro perspective, entrepreneurship or new venture is almost like uh, evolution or Darwinism, right? I.e., uh, the way to find success is to have multiple uh, mutations, 
right? And the more mutations you have, the higher potential for success, right? So the mutation in themselves isn't a, a, a thought process or a design to be better or worse. It's simply because you have multiple mutations that success appears, right? So if you have 10 startups in a particular ecosystem, the chances of one of them becoming a Snapchat is gonna be much, much lower than if you have 10,000 startups and one of them becoming a Snapchat, right? Uh, the reverse of that, which is actually more important for all you guys in this room, is that uh, now you can view entrepreneurship like uh, a baseball game, right? And I have Pete Rose up there, not because I condone cheating or gambling. I don't. Uh, lots of you guys think of him as the, uh, the, the lifetime leader in hits in, 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 uh, in professional baseball. Uh, the actually more impressive thing is he's the lifetime leader uh, by almost 20% for at-bats, right? And his not, his, he doesn't have a, a significantly above average batting average, right? The reason that he's successful is he got a lot of at-bats, right? And that's what all of you guys have to really think about is um, guys like Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, right? Those guys will hit 400, right? They're natural. They're natural. They're just really good at hitting a baseball. How do you become successful when... You're just an average dude who hits 260. Well, the way you'd be successful is you get a lot of at-bats. Right? From my VC perspective, where I make a lot of investment these days and I work with entrepreneurs, I'd much rather bet on an entrepreneur that has 10 at-bats with a low batting average than an entrepreneur with a high average and only a couple at-bats. Right? And the reason is because all we really care about is getting a single hit. Right? I really don't care about how many times you try to be successful. I care about that eventually that you are. So the speed in which you get those are bad is important, right? So if you have an idea about business, how do you iterate fast enough so that you can actually become successful, right? And the number of times that you can actually start new businesses matters as well. So the changes in the ecosystem have created an environment where you actually don't have to be a unicorn or actually spend 10 years like I did relearning the, the muscle memories of how to build a great company to become a successful entrepreneur, right? Um, I'm not saying that all of you will go out there and build billion dollar companies if you follow the formula. You are not, right? There's still those huge companies that are reserved for those who are really born with, with the instinct and the inherent kind of knowledge to, to, to do it. I'm saying that we can all do interesting things in our life. We can all change the world. Uh, maybe it's one little niche, maybe it's one little segment, maybe it's not a billion dollar exit, but we can all make a difference. Um, if we really think about our lives as multiple abats, um, really leverage the, the community and the resources that's really around us. I do want to switch gear a little bit and talk about um, what I'm actually doing in L.A. I moved in L.A. in 2006 um, for personal reasons. And what Los Angeles is today, um, or two years ago when I started Mucker Lab, was what uh, the barrier was in 2007 which is really before the advent of seed funds, the democratization of entrepreneurship, of this, this kind of understanding of entrepreneurship as a playbook rather than this mythical black box. What's interesting about LA is that LA has all the major components of being a great ecosystem. Right? And for me, the most important units of measure or the most important commodity for any community is the number of engineers. Right. Uh, engineers are what fuels um, the, the fire uh, to really drive the innovation cycle. And in LA, um, although none of them are as good as Stanford, um, we, we, there are kind of schools like USC and UCLA and Caltech that are really world-renowned engineering schools kind of producing great talent at building great code. What, we, what LA didn't have um, was this ability to bring all the pieces together to create a petri dish where an environment can really in increase the probability of success for entrepreneurs. And that's what Lab is. Um, I wanted to bring LA um, the, the, all the trappings of, of the ecosystem that we have here, all the benefits, all the people, um, all the thought processes, all the culture, and bring it to LA and really create a way for LA entrepreneurs to be successful. How do we play level the playing field? Um, 
we have a big roster of mentors, uh, people that I've worked with in, again, think about the network, right? Lots of people I work with here in Silicon Valley um, as mentors for our companies, acting as advisors, people to bounce ideas off, people to kind of keep them in, in the driving lane as they really kind of careen down kind of this, this entrepreneurship road. Um, given my partner and my, and in fact, my partner and myself spent a lot of time in the barrier, um, we actually have access to a lot of the same seed funds and the same kind of venture capital funds that early entrepreneurs nev traditionally never had access to. And probably, I like to think one of the most important thing is my partners and I work with these entrepreneurs to help them build their businesses. Um, I spent 10 years getting beat up. Um, there's not a lot of replacement for that kind of knowledge. And I can save our entrepreneurs a lot of time and a lot of headache, right? Compress that 10 years into you know, one or two years of learning within the confines of Muckalab and help them build their business. At Muckalab, I like to tell entrepreneurs that you don't have to be a unicorn to build a unicorn. Right? And how do I extrapolate to the to the guys that, to all you guys here in this room? Um, and the the way that I extrapolate it is um, accelerators are great, but they're really for people who are kind of lazy. Right? All of you here uh, can go find the right mentors, the right advisors to find your network, to find the VCs, to really kind of build your business, right? If you understand, there's a bunch of words down there that's not showing, but I just talked to it. Um, if you understand a few things about being an entrepreneur, you can actually be quite successful without being a unicorn or actually spending 10 years building a, uh, kind of building a career. Have a really long view, right? The average company is between seven to 10 years. And that means whether you're really successful today, whether TechCrunch is writing about you today, whether you think you're worth 10 million, 100 million, or even billion dollars, all that can change. In seven years, lots and lots of stuff can change. So have a really long view around who you are and where do you want to get to for you personally and for the company and build a business that really matches your passion and matches your vision. Um, the other thing to look at is be confident, right? like I said before, be confident but really trust uh, the instinct of those around you. Surround yourself with executives that perhaps they're not entrepreneurs, but they really know how to do one thing right. right? You don't have all the answers, and there's lots of people that's a lot more smarter than you that can really help you become successful. And share the credit once you are there. So last thing, go be a unicorn. Thank you. So now we'll have an opportunity to ask some questions. I'm going to start throwing out the first question to you, and then I hope all of you in the audience will think about the type of questions that you would like to ask. So let's imagine that I got accepted into your accelerator. Um, tell us a little bit about what that experience might be. Sure. How long would I be there? What sort yep. of services would I have? Yep. Uh, I've been trying really hard not to kind of market and talk too much about Mucker because not all you guys need us, but I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, the Mucker Lab program is a... Uh, six to 12 months program. And the reason that there's a huge variable is because we don't believe there's a formula to success. We believe the formula to success is actually um, the iteration and the experimentation of getting to a product market fit. So a company come, joins the program, they actually work out of the office, and I insert myself as part of the management team, my partners and I, and we actually help our companies build the product, take it to market, test different go-to-market strategies, and try to understand if the dog will eat the dog food, whether that, whether that means lots of people using the site, that means you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue or huge engagement metrics, whatever it might be. Our job is to help our companies get to that mythical product market fit, and then at the end of that process, help them fundraise with uh, venture capitalists. Great. Questions? Are there particular sectors you focus on and why and does your location in LA have to do anything with the kinds of sectors that you look at because LA has a different business mix than we have. Obviously. Um, so the answer is yes. Um, the, the foundational way that we look at companies is can my partners and I add value to that entrepreneur. We look at the delta between when they join the program and the projected delta when they leave the program. Can we add enough value for that company to feel like they got enough value working with us? Right? 
And given that type of thought process, it generally means that if I don't have a personal experience in that sector, um, it actually doesn't make sense for us to work with that company, even if I believe that's a billion dollar company waiting to happen. Right? Because again, it's a cottage industry. I want to work on something I'm passionate about, that the entrepreneur is actually passionate about, and action, I can actually add value. The good news is that my partner and I have a little bit of a career ADD. So uh, we have done quite a lot of different things when it comes to the landscape of internet uh, industries and segments. Um, so that means things like e-commerce, marketplaces, SaaS, uh, security, content and media in LA. These are all the things that we have experiences running, um, and we know how to build those businesses. Great. Questions? Yes. Could you talk to us more about your experience at AT&T Interactive? In such a large company, it must have been difficult to get things moving, to get support and maintain support for your initiatives. How did you do it? Uh, Ironically, the ability to sell um, and recruit um, was the most important part of being successful at a very, very large company. Um, at, a, at a company like AT&T, where there's multiple stakeholders, where there's you know, maybe about 500 people at my same level, um, the key to success is to actually gain allies. And the way that you build allies is to understand people's motivations. And, we like here to think that big companies are not innovative and they're slow and they're like dinosaurs and the people that like to play politics. Well, that's actually not completely true. Right? We all have one life to live. Right? We all want to do interesting things or even great things with our lives. And that means that guy that works at AT&T or that guy that's you know, behind the checkout counter at Safeway to you and I sitting here in this room. Everybody have a motivation that drives them. Right? So, if you understand their motivation and how they want to be different and how they want to change the world, um, you can actually help them accomplish that, that, uh, that goal. And the same thing at, at AT&T. Um, if you build enough allies and have enough uh, people that subscribe to your vision, you can get a lot done. Because right? every company needs to grow and everybody wants to be innovated. Um. Great. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, can you please explain uh, why you decided to join um, the Techstars Network and how Mugger Lab differs from Techstars? Okay. Uh, the question is, um, why did we decide to start the text, uh, join the Techstars Network um, and how we're different than uh, the other Techstars programs? Um, we wanted a, a couple things. I, I think I've never run an accelerator in my whole life. Right. Um, uh, I started companies. I worked at different internet companies at different stages. I worked at large um, telecom companies like AT&T. And I was eating my own, own dog food, right? listening to my own medicine, which is um, if I don't know how to do something, don't be afraid. Go do it. But surround yourself with people that actually know what they're doing and get their advice. And what Techstar did was actually provide us with a playbook, um, a way to kind of jump start and really think about how we can add value and, and run a great accelerator. Um, the second part of the question is why we're different. Um, be in Los Angeles where we are a, you know, in, in the technology um, echelon, a second tier uh, city where the ecosystem's not robust, where the capital is not as efficient. The way to be successful is actually to be uh, more focused on the outcome. Right? So the typical Techstar um, program will be three months, and you go through the program, and they have a very specific cookbook to go through, and once at the end of the program, you go out and fundraise. Um, our program can literally last two years. If you can't find product market fit or whatever your initial ideas doesn't work, you continue to pivot. Right? We, will not let, we will not let our entrepreneurs pivot in the wind, right? and that means we will not push them out the door and let them figure it out on their own. Right? Our job is to help our entrepreneurs, and every entrepreneur's dream deserve the chance to be successful. Right? Our job is not to have 80 companies in class and pick the one that, or be lucky enough to pick one that becomes successful. Our job is to be 100% referenceable with every entrepreneur we work with. And that means every entrepreneur, we will work with them until they give up. Right? And as long as they're at it, then we will be working with them. Great. Yes. Hi. Not being rude, just curious. Um, why should I move to Los Angeles if I'm in LA? If I could find better engineers here that would rather work in a garage than work in a few. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. Right? Um, 
Los, uh, the Silicon Valley or the Bay Area or even Palo Alto or Soma is a very unique place. Um, if you are lucky enough to stay here, to be from this area, to, to pursue your passion here in Silicon Valley, you should stay here. The, the chance of success here will be infinitely higher than anywhere in the world. But if you happen to have a family in Los Angeles, if you happen to love the sun, if you happen to love the beach, if you happen to just want to be Los Angeles because you have a dream to one day become a great director, <laughs> uh, go pursue your dreams. And if you one day you happen to want to start an internet company and you don't want to move, McCollab is a great choice for you. Right? We level the playing field. Right? But if you're here, then stay. Right. Question? What's the maximum size of the company that you're, uh, let's say, letting in? Let, if, it, if the company is profitable, do you accept them to the accelerator? Yeah, uh, because the way we work with the company is also hands-on and so customized, um, the stages of our companies are actually significantly different than other accelerators. We definitely take companies where it's three guys with an idea on a piece, piece of napkin, and we help them get that going. There are times we take companies that's three years old. Um, uh, our most, uh, the largest company we've ever taken from the employee perspective is 15. From the fundraising perspective, they already have a million and a half raised. Uh, from the longest perspective, it's three years. Right? Again, what we looked at is the delta in which we can help accelerate their business and how much value we can add. Right? A lot of these companies are going through kind of huge strategic shift or the market is going through significant changes, and we can be of value. Right? Um, for an interesting anecdote to that is uh, for our most recent investment, um, we have a company that actually uh, moved from China. Um, they are a company that's three years old. They were selling a premium app in the App Store, uh, doing about a million downloads a year. Um, and they wanted to create a larger business. Right? It was a great cash flow business, and they were making good money. But they were thinking about, how do I really change the world? And we help them pivot to a different, completely different model and, and gain scale and reach that they never thought possible. So it really depends on what your goals are and how we can get you there. All along the stage, obviously, if you're you know, Square or one of these later stage companies, it would make a lot of sense. But any early stage company that's still looking for product market fit, um, we can help. Do you take equity in the companies? We do. Uh, we take between 6 to 8% of the company. Um, and we make investments between 25K all the way to 500K at some point in the future. Great. Another question, yes. Uh, what percentage of your companies are focused on B2B business versus B2C versus public? Yeah. And the second part is, do you expect that to change in the future? So from the Mucker Lab perspective, about 60% of our company is consumer focused and 40% is enterprise. Um, and ironically, if you actually look at the GDP, the split is about the same, right? Um, we are not an index fund, so that means our, my goal is actually not to match what's going on in the marketplace. I want to find great entrepreneurs targeting on a white space opportunity with a disruptive idea. If that means all 10 companies that I work with right now as consumers, so be it. If that means all 10 enterprise, so be it, right? Um, it's really about the opportunity itself. We're very bottom-up in our approach rather than very top-down. Question? Yeah, so I was, you mentioned that you weren't necessarily very prepared uh, when you started your first company. Uh, so I was just curious whether you, you were able to pick up anything uh, that was useful to you during your 10 weeks at Cred Suisse, or if there are particular careers that you think would be useful for people who actually want to start businesses down the, down the line. Yeah, um, it's very important to have some, uh, some basic financial skills. Um, and I learned that um, working as an investment banker. It doesn't mean that you can't pick that up taking a class here um, or going online or taking a book, right? Or, or taking a book and just reading. Um, the key here is to accumulate uh, applicable skills um, and applying to the business that you're working on. Um, that could be working at a job, that could be you know, chasing down Professor Kosnick in the hall and asking a few questions. Take any opportunity to accumulate knowledge. Um, so that doesn't mean that working at a certain industry matters or not matters. There's a lot of ways to build knowledge that doesn't require you to actually commit 
uh, one or two years of your life doing something, right? But um, I'll say that uh, no matter what job you do, uh, to be successful, the discipline and the the depth of commitment you need to be to be successful at that job is something that is transfer transferable to anything that you do, right? So. There's always something you can learn no matter what job you're in that help you become successful in the future. Right? So be cognizant, um, work hard, and, and, and really think hard about what you're doing right now today and how that really helps you in the future. So uh, let me build on this. Um, let's go back to when you were a student here. Mm -hmm. uh, what would you have done differently when you were a student to prepare you for your first venture? Is there something you could have done differently? And also, um, how much can you actually learn in a classroom setting versus the real life experience that you've got in all these ventures? I think uh, classrooms gives you a framework to understand the problem that you're facing. What it doesn't do is help you actually uh, create the solution to that problem. But uh, I always like to believe the, the process is much more important than the outcome. How you arrive at a solution is much more important than the solution itself. And that's what Stanford and, 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 and education provides you with. Um, that also means that the muscle memories of applying a framework to a problem you're facing in real life is something that can only be accumulated uh, in real life. Right? Um, but that doesn't mean that sitting here at Stanford that you can't actually go and launch a product and try to figure out product market fit, sell something, uh, build something, or, or, or come up with an idea and really test your ability to figure out whether something you learned in class X can actually be help you in doing Y. Um, one of the things I wish done more is actually go out and actually do it. Right? Of course, back in 1999, for me to build a website cost me $2 million, so I couldn't even if I wanted to. You guys have an incredible opportunity to actually go out and do and turn your dreams to actual reality or a concept into actual product. And the cost of that is almost nothing, especially given the resources that's available here. So go take advantage of it. Right? Um, I don't believe any of uh, the Stanford workload will, will so overwhelm you that you can't actually pursue the things that actually drive your passion. So. Great. Question? Yes. You said that you tend to take a man. You said that you take a, a managing part in the companies, and you actually are hands-on managing, which seems to be a little different from a lot of other accelerators. Mm -hmm. What was your reasoning for doing that? Um, my reason is because, uh, from the outside in, I wanted to create a program where I'm fully invested in success of every single entrepreneur I'm working with, right? And that means. I got to be a coach rather than just be a, a, you know, some guy that, that actually just manages the program. Right? And to really ensure the success, I got to bring my experiences to, to, to bear to these companies. And that's really, truly the only way to do it. Um, the other, the other um, reason that the, the way that we structure the program is because, um, again, this is Los Angeles. right? So that means the entrepreneurs that we're seeing are, are, have great uh, potential for, for being a great entrepreneur, but they just don't have the muscle memory or the knowledge or the experiences that um, all of you are lucky to have here by being in, in Palo Alto. Right? So um, us working with them more hands-on just helps them train them faster to become what we need them to become, which is um, a certain type of great entrepreneur. So given your, your stint at Credit Suisse, um, What's your perspective on why banks have such a hard time innovating? <laughs> well, uh, the, the, the caveat there is I spent 10 months there, so I can consider myself uh, an expert in banking. Um, but I have a couple theses. Um, one is, is uh, regulatory, right? Um, and um, everything in a bank is, uh, touches some sort of regulatory body, and laws are always slow to change. Um, and so therefore, innovation that runs up against um, an immovable object is always hard to execute. Um, the other is um, really around uh, the fact that banks uh, work with uh, virtual goods, if you will. Right? That's kind of a weird statement to say. Well, uh, money is a virtual good. 
right? Most of the money in the world is actually not in hard cash, right? So that means uh, it's very intangible, right? $10 million is just a number on a spreadsheet, right? A billion dollars is another number on the spreadsheet. It's really hard for banking uh, companies to really think about the concreteness of the innovation and the thing that the product itself that they can take to market. They think of themselves as services, a services company providing number crunching rather than providing innovative products. Right? It's easier to innovate on something much more concrete than just a PowerPoint presentation, bunch of numbers, number crunching, some analysis to give someone. In at Mucker Lab, mm -hmm. is there interaction between the different ventures that are working there? Is, Absolutely. is there an opportunity for cross-pollination? Absolutely. Um, we, the, at any given time, there's about 10 companies working on Mucker Lab, and they're physically working in an office. Right? So there's not 80 companies spread across kind of Mountain View. They're literally in the office every single day. Um, and like I said to our companies, leverage the resources around them, the experiences and the knowledge. Right? And my partners and I are obviously one, one kind of vector into achieving that goal. And the people that they're working with, that they see eye to eye with across the cube, across the desk, these are also other people that they, they can gain either a network or solve a problem for them. Um, so a lot of our companies end up being each other's customers. Um, they help each other recruit other engineers or other potential uh, employees. Um, and sometimes end up you know, become advisors for each other. Right? No one is smarter than someone else. And peers are actually great ways to kind of bounce ideas off each other. Great. One final question. Yes. It seems like you have gone through multiple transformations in your life and worked with so many different companies. I just was wondering, like, when starting this new company, like coming out at 22, um, what were your goals coming out of Stanford? What are your goals now? And what's next? Can you please repeat that? Uh, so it's a multiple stage question. Uh, so the, uh, the question would be, what was my goal? Uh, what, I, what I wished to accomplish when I first graduated from Stanford? Um, and what's my goal and objective right now? Right? Right. So uh, when I first graduated from Stanford, um, I had two objectives. Um, one was to do something great, right? which is kind of generic. And, and I, it's part of the reason I failed. I wasn't very specific about what I want to do. Um, another thing which I am actually ashamed to say is I want to make a lot of money. Uh, today, that's certainly important, right? I want to send my kids to Stanford and it's really expensive here. Yeah. <laughs> right? uh, but uh, it is a side product of what I want to accomplish rather than the main outcome, right? And that speaks to what do I want to do. Um, after spending three years at AT&T, I quickly realized that my passion was still around this community I grew up with here in the Bay Area. Right? It, is, it is Apple and Cupertino, HP and Palo Alto being one of the, the epicenter of starting to change the world one bits and bytes at a time. Right? And I wanted to do that again, uh, but I thought that it would be very selfish of me to just start a company on my own and, and go do the thing that I wanted to do. That at this point in my career, I have some flexibility. Um, I've saved up and I actually have a safety net in the fact that I have a, a, a nice career so I can go do whatever I want to do um, eventually. So um, Mucker Lab and, and making investments in, in kind of C-stage companies in LA is my way of giving back. I, I realize that um, the path I've taken is certainly is one path to success. Uh, but if I can help someone actually shortcut that process and become successful and achieve their dreams, I can actually get just as much um, um, utility or benefit or a sense of accomplishment doing that. Um, the question is then, what will Sue going to do 10 years from now? Well, I don't know. You know um, that's, that's kind of the, the, the hard question that everybody has to answer. Um, I love what I'm doing now. Um, it's something that we've been really successful at doing, and, and I've never enjoyed a, a better, uh, a more fulfilling job than I'm doing now. Helping other people become successful is actually more fulfilling than making yourself successful. It's, it's actually one of the biggest revelations of the last two years, 
And if I'm lucky enough um, where the returns are great um, and our entrepreneurs love, continue to love working with us, maybe I'll do this for the rest of my life. Right? Um, for those that I can't do, maybe they'll teach. And this is my way of teaching. Wonderful. <laughs> Join me in thanking Will for his wonderful time. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.